Hey, sci-fi fans, this is Sean Ashmore from the X-Men Films. You may know me as Bobby Drake, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This episode brought to you by Michael Crate and James Husband. Special love goes out to Lee Kemp, who manages our Facebook page. If you like what you're hearing here on the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way. And by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today. Audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversation. I'd say we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, we're we don't need Rose. Yes, who's coming to dinner? But okay, um, so let's get this panel started. This is the state of fan films in 2019. Um, I also like it to call it a little bit of how to make a fan film. And we'll talk about lots of elements. Um, we will get introductions. Why don't you introduce yourself? Then I will thank you. Lather. Hello, my name is Miles McLaughlin. Uh, I co-host a podcast called the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Uh, we have talked and interviewed many uh, folks over the years that uh, have uh, produced and made uh, fan films. Uh, we've we've talked to uh, John Broughton a few times from Farragut Films. We've talked to uh, John Cauley from. Uh, New Voyages, we talked to um, Vic Manana from Star Trek Continues. I enjoy fan films, so I guess that's why I'm, I'm here. <laughs> um, my name is Kyle Williamson, uh, otherwise known as Captain Kyle in, in my media and cosplay life. Um, I am the executive producer and host of the Phantom Spotlight um, website and channel. Um, we have a number of things on there, including some comedy sketches. Um, we do a lot of more news reporting and reviews, but I have been in, written, acted in, um, helped shoot a lot of different fan films. Um, I have always enjoyed making fan films. Um, I have done things in Doctor Who, Star Trek, in conjunction with some of the Farragut Films people. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about what you can do nowadays with fan films that you couldn't do 20 years ago, that you couldn't do 10 years ago. So, um, that being said, um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, who here wants to make a fan film or has made a fan film or has an interest in... You can raise your hands. I recognize you. <laughs> you're like, you're not a liar. <laughs> um, the thing that makes fan films different than regular films or independent films is they are technically illegal. Um, because you were playing in someone else's sandbox, you were basically using someone else's characters to tell a story. And they can be great stories. There's a lot of not-so-great stories out there. Um, but uh, they are technically at the whim of the owner of the actual property, um, as we saw with a little bit of a, uh, a kerfluffle, should we call it, with Axinar. Um, Alec Peters. Yes. 
So, um, just a little background on that. There's a lot of people who make some great fan films. Vic Mignogna, you know, Star Trek continues. They have great production quality, great guests, very good films. Um, more than 10 years, what is it, 12? I, I don't even know how long ago they started making fan films, but their recreation of the actual Constitution-class starship environment is, like, spot on. I've been on those sets. It's incredible. I'm jealous. Um, I don't know if you're going to be able to get in there anymore because now Farragut Films doesn't own those sets. Star Trek Continues doesn't own those sets. Somebody owns those sets. Phase 2 up in upstate New York. They yeah. also have awesome sets. There's like now license too, so you can take tours of it. They don't film there anymore officially, from what I know. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean officially? <laughs> I I've been hearing bits and pieces of if you want to get something, you can do it, but you can't do like a full production. It's like we want to take a picture of the family in front of the bridge. You can do that, I think. Right. But uh, apparently, their layout mimics the Sulu sets from the '60s. So it's. Supposedly full in that regard, but it's it's no longer an active set. An active set. That's on my bucket list. I want to go see it sometime. It's, someday. They did a good job. <laughs> did a good job. Yeah, I think the passion that is brought to fan films is key, um, because there are so many people who love certain properties. But again, a little background on the Axidar situation for those who aren't familiar, and those who are, I'm sorry. Uh, but to make a long story short, um, Alex Peters decided to um, do some crowdfunding for this particular film, raised over a million dollars in crowdfunding, used it to finance a studio which would not only be for the fan film but other things, supposedly. There's, there's a lot of hearsay and was also making some boasts that his film, which was going to be a prequel to the regular Star Trek series basically um, talking about a particular battle I think with Garth and Izar and all that stuff um, and, and using professional actors he claimed that his film was going to be better than anything that J.J. Abrams was putting out or anything that Paramount could put out and the thing is you don't poke the bear he also took a salary yes um, major thing with fan films a lot of properties will allow them um, but if you're making a profit from it, if you're selling it, if you are, you know, making a living from it, that's a no-no. Um, fan films are purely non-profit. Now, parodies, on the other hand, you can make parodies, you can make homages that are not exactly the same thing, and you can make money from those because they're not exactly the property. But a fan film, no. Do not make any money from it. Now, so the only time I saw a fan film being sold was Brown Coat's Redemption, and they had special dispensation from the copyright owner, from Joss Whedon, because the sales, were, all the profits were going to charity, and it was for a limited window of time. But overall, you can donate to a fan film organization, um, but those donations are to be used for the production, for material costs. They are not to be pocketed by anyone. And unfortunately, with the accident situation, that is what was happening. And, and CBS consequently imposed. Okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, there's give the guidelines. Yes. For instance, no more than 15 minutes for your fan film, um, or two 15 minute portions. Um, no continuing um, series. They basically said you can raise, you can do crowdfunding, but I think the cap was like fifty thousand dollars. You can raise more than that. 
I, I'm not. I may not be remembering exactly, but if, I think it was like fifty thousand dollars you could raise. They also said you could not have professional actors in your production, um, and no one could like actually take a salary. Thing about professional actors that is so murky. It's very difficult because, hey, when you were three, you were in a Loves commercial. You got paid for it. You're a professional actor, and now thirty years later, you want to be in a fan film. Will that disqualify you? Technically, yes, but uh, um, I don't think they would necessarily come after you. But I, I think they were concerned about having cast members from Star Trek and other big sci-fi franchises making appearances in a Star Trek fan film and lending it more legitimacy. Uh, Star Trek continues, and New, uh, New Voyages enjoyed having. Uh, some of the original, you know, original cast members make appearances on their productions, but and guest stars too. And guest, yeah, and, and guest stars from other uh, shows uh, made appearances on there. So, but at the same time, I think they were trying to respect CBS and not, uh, you know. Well, here's the thing about the guidelines. I say, if you follow these guidelines, we won't come after you. If you don't follow the guidelines, they might come after you. But they might not, because Star Trek continues totally ignored the guidelines to finish up their series. But then they finished their series, and it was done. So I think they just kind of said, we're going to finish it. They come after us, they come after us. But Or maybe Vic uh, Mignana, who works in the entertainment industry, talked to someone over there and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're not taking a profit. They might have said, go ahead. We're not going to come after you. So that's the legal side. Let's talk about making fan films and what it starts with. Um, a script. You need a script. You need to write something. You need to have a story. Um, I actually attended the... I forget the... All my preparation is showing through here. I forget the gentleman's name. He wrote a book on the definitive history of fan films. And fan films go back to like the 1900-somethings. There are fan films as far back as then... And the problem with most fan films is they suck. Um, there's a lot of fan films out there. Bad pacing, bad scripts, bad dialogue, just bad cinematography. And we are coming to a place, technology-wise, where, and we have been for a while, where anyone can make a fan film. The thing is, um, a lot of people who make the fan films, they say, yes, I can shoot things, I can do special effects, and some of those things come out great. But you still need a story. You still need a script. You still need good dialogue. I, on the fan films that you've watched, um, would you say the majority of them are lacking that department, or have you managed to find the cream of the crop? I think some of the ones that just got started, the stories were okay, but I think that the more they kept going, I, they got better at it. Um, there's some fan films that are almost unwatchable just because the, the acting is bad and just uh, the people playing those parts. And it could be just my, my bias. I expect when I, when I start to see something, I expect a certain person to be playing these roles. And, and for some of these people, they're just playing Star Trek and they're having fun. And God bless them for it. But it, to but if you you want to put something a little serious and you want people to watch and enjoy, 
and it takes a little more. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the Star Trek continues one example where you're looking at these characters, and you're, ex- you know, Star Trek to me, the original series is is William Shatner and his type of acting, and Vic did an excellent job portraying that. But he's also works professionally in acting, so he has a background. Uh, a lot of the people that they bought in um, were similar in appearance to the original characters. Um, you know, had an acting background, and so that helped it. But it was still jarring to look at someone who's like, that is not William Shatner. Yes. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree. And for people who are just making fan films to have fun, that's a wonderful thing, you know. Um, if you want to... Fan films can be a great jumping-off point for a number of other things, because if you can learn the craft of filmmaking, then and you have a body of work that you can show someone, this is what I can do, you could turn that into a professional gig of some kind. That could be a resume for you. Yeah. Um, it's a way of having material without having to actually get together and have a network support you or something like that. So, um, yeah, fan films are definitely a great uh, learning experience, and you do see some of the series where people get better as they go along. And then you, uh, as I said, writing is key. And I mean, writing is not easy. Um, to come up with a storyline that is cohesive, a storyline that good dialogue. Um, there are people on TV who write stuff, and you're like, "What were they thinking?" You know, it's, I pick that apart all the time. I'm not going to mention <coughs> Star Trek Discovery. Um, there are some issues with every show. Legends of Tomorrow. I had big issues with some of the things that the writers decided. Um, but yeah, so stories are a thing, acting is a thing. Um, but what are the good things that you can do today? Well, you guys have uh, worked on fan films. Um, what has your experience has been as far as like the level of production? It definitely depends on the people who are crewing at the time. You can make some great production value with mediocre equipment if the people that you're working with are familiar with the strengths and weaknesses of equipment that you carry. So let, let's say you've got a zoom lens camera. That's generally frowned upon in actual production design, but if you know somebody who can actually work around that and they play with strengths, it actually provides a lot of budgetary constraint and overcomes it. But at the same time, you have to be wary of the fact that you can't zoom all the way in and just keep the lighting the same because now there's not enough light coming through all that glass to make it sharp and keep the contrast levels up. Like, you have to pour more light in in order to compensate for it. So they know about that. But then they also sit there and go, well, we don't have enough lights to pour into this scene with a zoom lens in. So we're just going to pick up the camera and move it forward to get that shot instead. And, and those are the kinds of things that I've been... Uh, exposed to where the expertise of the people involved can help overcome some of the limitations that fan films have from a budgetary standpoint or equipment standpoint. But if you're being crewed by a team that's just literally doing their first production ever, you'll have all of those disadvantages coming in and you may not even know what you don't know. That'll cause uh, your final product to be 
somewhat discordant with what you think you were going to get. And I, I think that's where I've been seeing a lot of it. We've been on productions where people are uh, super talented, and they work in this industry commercially doing things like weddings or uh, like conference videos for businesses, training videos like that. Then they'll do a 24-hour film challenge that happens in the air pretty often. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it with whatever leftover equipment we have. Right. The production value still looks just as good as the stuff that they put out for their actual day job. But then we've got other people who've never done anything. Uh, and they, they take on the 24-hour task. And the quality change is impressive. Like, you can see that it's really a contribution of all these things that will move forward. And I, I think that's the great part. Like, what we have... You like two lights and a Sony NEX5 camera, like it's it's nowhere near production quality. But some of the stuff that comes out of it, we're pretty we're pretty proud of it. Yeah, because he knows like it's a it's one of those things where it's a good camera, but a good camera gets you only so far. But like some of the stuff that comes out of that camera is mind blowing because he knows how to do lighting. I'm sitting here going, I know a visual story that I want to tell because I have an art background, but like. I don't, I have a camera, I have thing. I need you to help me light things so that I can get the story. So, and, and I've always been the newbie, like, just tell me what's to do, because I don't have a background in any of this. And having a set where people know what they're doing, they're like, okay, we're doing this, and by the way, we're doing it because of this. It, it can be really awesome to learn some of that stuff. Just, just to add one more point to that, like you said before, the collaboration is a lot of different skill sets that come together. The skill set for writing, creating a story, dialogue, audio, if, if those are lacking and you've got a great like lighting director and an okay setup for equipment, it's still going to end up being negative in the long run because the dialogue or the pacing or even just the, the framing because of how you think you're going to shoot it can make it all fall apart. So uh, having a team that has proficiencies in all those areas is kind of almost a requirement. Well, it, it's also one of those things where like YouTube videos can show it really as well, too, how you have some people who are like, know they're shooting with crap lighting, just room lighting like this on a cell phone, and yet you tune in every time they put a video on because there's just something energy. So sometimes like, you know, and you've seen like, some fan films where, like, the filming and the lighting in the area can be really good. Actually, I was just thinking about that. If you ever saw Troops, which was, like, from the mid-90s, which was mm -hmm. the, which is basically a new was whole, cops, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cops shown from the standpoint of the troopers running around on Tatooine getting a report of people getting burned, <laughs> attacked by Jawas. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. And, and its production value was poor compared to what we could do today, but... It's a great story. I think it also had the advantage of not being uh, tied to any particular characters that we associated with emotionally. Like it, it didn't have Ben Kenobi in it. It didn't have Luke Skywalker. They didn't see them, so there was no that. There was none of that dissonance. It's not like that doesn't look right. There's yeah. no, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah, you're just like it's it's stormtroopers. It's in a format that's entertaining. The video quality was kind of like okay. You We're can forgive this. that. Yeah. Because because the rest of it was just entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. The story, utmost importance, dialogue, um, pacing, all that is important. 
And you mentioned audio, which I'm glad you did, because audio is a key element. If you don't have good audio, you can have the best visuals ever. Or if they can't understand a word you're saying because you're really very bad or in the background, they are not going to stick around. Brown Coats Redemption, I went to uh, Wizard World. Yeah. I went to Wizard World, um, and they were showing it on the big screen at Wizard World. And the audio was so bad, I couldn't understand what they were saying, I walked out. And I'm, I'm a brown coat. I, I love Firefly. I wanted to see what they were doing. And I actually think I have it on DVD. I have to rewatch it to see if the audio is any better, if it was just a sound system. But really, if you don't have good audio, um, your, your cinematography can be me. But if you have good audio, that can kind of make up. And the story. You know, there's a lot of elements. If you bring everything together, you can make some incredible things. Um, Play with the technology so that you know your limitations before you go. Right. And YouTube is a great resource for looking at how to do things. There's plenty of tutorial videos that talk about lighting, that talk about framing, that talk about, you know, all... Yeah, pretty much everything you need to know is out there. The problem is if you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what to look for. Um... So, audio is important, but not only fans with like a uh, you know a mini camcorder are doing fan films. There's been a lot recently that are fan films that a lot of professionals are getting involved in. Um, some of them are music videos. If you've watched the Deadpool things, um, they have uh, a Deadpool parody of uh, Gaston. Uh, the Gaston song from Beauty and the Beast, and it is hilarious, and the production value is so great, the special effect, because these are fans who happen to work in the industry, and came together and put this together. And there was a sequel to that, I forget what it's uh, called, but yeah, they just have a lot of professional work in there. Fanorama was another one, which actually Vic Mignano was involved in, of Zach Brannigan, which, you know, it's my character. Now, <laughs> um, Green screens helped. I yeah. About green screen, lighting is so important with the green screen, or else, you know, there's stuff you can do in post to clean it up, but if you don't have good green screen to start out with, it makes it a lot tougher in post, so good lighting on the green screen. There was a, one I saw recently, I, I guess they got, I think that they got some permission or blessing from CBS to do what they did. It was Star Trek Temporal Anomaly. Okay. It, uh, it, it just came out recently. It's a two-parter. It, each episode is like 20 minutes long, and it, it is kind of a continuation. But uh, there's a uh, YouTube um, group called uh, Trek Yards, and one of the guys from Trek Yards, he, he directed and produced Temporal Anomaly. And the green screen work is so good, sometimes you forget it's actually green screen. And it has, it has to be green screen because they're... They're on the bridge of starships. They're in the engineering, engineering the transporter room. Sometimes you can kind of notice, because but but there's other times you can't. And for you know, I don't say this derisively, but for an amateur production, I thought these these guys did a pretty good job. But that that, that just came out recently. Uh, Temple anomaly. There's another one that came out I think I, like two years ago that was Star Trek Horizon. I think it also did a, a debut on YouTube just before, just after the, the CBS stuff hit. Oh, yes. I liked it. I thought that was really cool. I saw it too. Well. Yeah, that, that, 
and from what I understand, they film most of it in the garage. But yeah, but you can't. I mean, the, the, the story was good. The, the story was the compelling part about it too, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think again that brings a lot of the strength. If there's something there that makes you want to watch more, you're willing to give a little bit on some of the other aspects. Mm -hmm. But it was a good story. I, I really enjoyed it. So that I thought that was a good example of, a, of one that. Not no no if it's a one hit wonder because I'm pretty sure he's like I'm. That was what I wanted to say. That's my story. I'm kind of done. Mm -hmm. But you can tell he put effort in. Yeah, I think it took him a few years to make it too. It was, but yeah, I, yeah. If you haven't seen Star Trek Horizon, it's during the Enterprise era, and a lot of it takes place on a NX class yeah, starship. Class starship. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Definitely put them on my list to uh, things to watch. Anyone familiar with it, uh, with the Hollywood Show? Um, it's a YouTube channel, and they do like music video parodies of like Supernatural, Walking Dead, um, other other superhero stuff, and uh, it's like, it's pretty amazing stuff. They have like a Patreon, I think, when they were actually showing what they were making, they were getting around $100,000 a month in Patreon contributions. <coughs> but what they do is so excellent. They just did a Supernatural parody music video, and they had the cast of Supernatural involved in it. It was a Supernatural uh, but Ghostbusters thing. So two of them are running around as Sam and Dean, and there's so many appearances by people on the show, and then at the very end showing up in Ghostbusters uniforms of the actual Jensen Ackles and the other guy show up and are like, hey, Hollywood, let's go kick some ass. It's like incredibly well done, but they have some money behind them and a huge fan base. Their earlier stuff was good and inventive, um, and that's what got them the fan base. But yeah, they've been able to increase their production value. They have sound stages, they have choreographed dancers. It's like, wow. But it's also fun to remember they started, like go back to some of the early stuff. Yes. And see what they started with. Yeah, I, we've been watching a few YouTube videos, series that, that have finally hit their million subscriber marks. And the vast majority of them look like it takes somewhere between five and ten years to try and get to that. Um, so if you look back at the stuff that they had ten years ago, it's cringeworthy. Uh, and then you compare it to something that they may have released last week, and you're like, wow, there has been a lot of a lot of advancements in what they did. But I, I, you know, I think for what we were thinking about was whether or not some of that organically just happens after you hit a critical mass of viewership. Like, let's say only 20% of the people that ever see your stuff like it enough to subscribe. If only six people see it, it's like two people. But if, if at a certain point 50,000 people see it, 20% of that is your next 10,000. Yeah, 20% is a very high <laughs> turnover rate. Um, if you get one subscriber for every 100 views, I know a little bit about YouTube. Okay. Um, I have not hit my million mark. Um, but I can tell you it is for most people a long journey. Some people are like they come on the scene and they just have the right mindset and they, they hit it with a good niche at the right time and they can explode and in a year they can have a million subscribers. But most people, it's a slog um, of building. I started um, three and a half years ago and put up videos and the thing was when I started I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a YouTuber. 
I thought, I'm going to put up stuff on YouTube as samples of networks, and then the networks are going to snap me up, because I'm so talented, and uh, I won't have to worry about YouTube anymore. That's just, you know, so I have, you know, material out there. It's kind of also copyrighted when you upload it to YouTube. It's obviously, they have a record of when you uploaded it. So if someone tries to rip you off, you have evidence and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's not going to, you know, I'm not going to be on there long. And it wasn't until a little over a year ago that I said, you know, these networks have missed out. They have not snapped me up. Um, but I have to realize I am a YouTuber. So I started really learning how to do YouTube. And it took me about two years, a little over two years, to get to 1,000 subscribers. And then when I started learning the craft of YouTube and how to promote on YouTube and how to structure YouTube videos, um, that actually, within the last one year and about two, three months, gained an additional 6,300 subscribers. So it does go up as you, as you increase your quality, but there's also a lot to it. There are people who've been on YouTube for three years and they still have 125 subscribers. And uh, it's because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. A lot of people on YouTube put out the same videos that they did on day one. They don't try to improve. They're like, someone's going to catch on. And one of the guys we saw did effectively the same video, same kind of review thing, five years apart. And it's one of those things where when you realize camera quality didn't change that much. But his understanding of what you were seeing and what he was saying and his audio improvement because he got a better microphone and started actually just recording it instead of like I'm recording into a camera he actually had a dedicated he was doing voiceover mainly but he invested in his audio and you could tell he invested in some script writing classes <laughs> it was and you didn't notice it until you saw effectively him doing the same thing five years apart and all of a sudden you're going it was pretty interesting, like the five-year-old one, and then like you, like I don't care about what you're talking about now, but I can't stop because it's so interesting. Like you, you dragged me into it, and the biggest change was the fact that you can clearly tell that he invested a lot of time in learning how to write a script. Yep, and that this was for a review. This was for a video game review. So this wasn't this wasn't like a story. He still he wrote made it, very he good script. So he made it, this was about SimCity. The evolution of the SimCity game, when it came out, a little bit about its background, you get two different versions of it. I played SimCity. Okay. I really could care two shits about the history of it or whatever, and I'm like, I can't stop watching his video, because he took the time to learn and practice script writing. He dragged you in, he got you invested in it. You know, the classic story kind of thing. He he got it to be a story, and he got you in there. So it's like when he's saying work on script, work on some script stuff because you can drag people in kicking and screaming. I mean, it's amazing. So I'm like, I don't care about floppy disks, but now I want to know because you're telling me that like, it's an interesting story. It's like, um, what is it, like 60 Minutes, Dateline or something, where like there's this like whodunit like, mystery thing that they're talking about. And normally you're like, yeah, whatever, just like tell me who did it. But then they can drag it out for 60 minutes because now I'm like, gosh, I want to know, like, did that guy actually do it or was that, like, you know, 
1973, there was evidence, blood evidence. Yes, and it was and, just like, but we couldn't actually analyze it until, like, 1998 or something. Like, yeah, it was just, and, and all of that is script writing. And it doesn't matter how nonfiction the thing is you're talking about, it's a story. And if you, once you put it into that mindset that what you're doing is telling a story, so everybody should learn script writing on proof. That yeah. I mean that's what and I'm story struck exactly. If you if you can sell the story, your iffy audio, oh man, I wish you'd get a better microphone, but I'm gonna keep watching every week and putting that YouTube comment in saying you need a better microphone. <laughs> but I'm gonna keep watching. Um, you can forgive lighting, you can forget like you can have it on the selfie camera or whatever, but like if you're like step one, practice script writing story. You can, everything else can come in due time. If you, yeah, if you have, if you can structure it in a way that's engaging, because engagement is the key on anything. In fact, once you start doing film, um, or any type of visual media, you're, I, when you're watching a show on TV, you're watching it in a different way. You're noticing things that before you just didn't notice. You're noticing the pacing. You're noticing the story. You're noticing the elements come together. You're also noticing camera angles. You're also noticing what's called pattern interrupt. This is good in any type of story. Because if if you watch some of the old movies, they'll have an opening shot, and it'll be like a helicopter view of a car driving up a road for like 10 minutes. Maybe not 10 minutes, but it seems like 10 minutes. <laughs> when, <like> 10 minutes. <laughs> um, while the credits roll, and it's like, this is not interesting visually. Um, now... They jump from scene and angle. Something changes every few seconds to reset your thing. That's something on whether you're doing a film or whether you're doing a YouTube video. Something needs to change quite often visually. Because um, even if they're sitting there, if you were just staring at me on a screen, and I'm talking, and maybe what I'm talking about is interesting, but... After a while, your mind is going to start to wander. They say, for like four seconds, if something isn't changing visually, your mind is going to start to wander. But then a graphic pops up in the corner, you know, related to what I'm talking about. That resets. I zoom, you zoom in a little bit. If you watch YouTube videos, you'll see a lot of the people who have a lot of subscribers and a big fan base, they'll be talking, and then they'll still be talking, but they're bigger. They zoomed in a little bit, or they zoomed out a little bit, or something changes, or a graphic showed up in the corner, and they're like, you know, check out this, you know, Pokemon, or whatever they're talking about. Um, you have to keep people visually engaged, but it's visual storytelling, and it's kind of resetting their synapses. Um, the thing about fan films is very similar to YouTube, is that you're, no one's paying for a fan film. You know, it should. If they are, there's a problem. No one paid to watch a fan film. So if you don't grab them quickly, they're going to be like, "Oh, I'm going to go look at something else. Um, I'll go learn more about you know SimCity's history." Uh, <coughs> so if you pay ten bucks, twelve bucks, twenty bucks, whatever it costs to get into a movie nowadays. If it doesn't grab you in the first 30 seconds, you're not going to be like, I'm leaving. Because you paid money. You know, you're going to wait and hope and be like, hopefully by the end of the movie, you're like, wow, that was such a build-up and it took a little while, but then I got so into it. Hopefully it's a great movie. But you paid for it, so you're going to give it more slack. 
fan film, you have to do something to bring them in right away, or else people will, you know, go away. You will basically say, I can watch something else that will grab my attention more quickly. So it's important to know how to build a story. And you can talk to a lot of the authors out here, because um, they do very similar things. The first chapter of a book has to really intrigue you, or are you going to continue? I mean, if you bought a book, you might try to slog through it. But if it doesn't really grab your attention, you know, story is key. Um, and yes, a lot of the other things can be forgiven. I have a, it, it's not a fan film, but it's a short film. It's called A Matter of Time. It's a people trapped in a basement, and then there's a voice from the future. It's on my channel, so you can check it out. Um, and the cinematography and the lighting was not very good. I actually want to go back and try to do a director's cut using color correction and maybe tweak it. The audio was not as good as I would have liked. Um, we were in a basement sometimes. The heater would go off and we'd have to wait for the heater. And we didn't have control over it, um, or we tried to control it, but it didn't really work out well. But someone wrote to me um, a comment. He said, this is one of the best stories I've seen on YouTube for you know a short film. It drew me in. The story was great. Your cinematography wasn't the best. The sound wasn't the best. But the story was awesome. And that made me feel good. Since I wrote the thing. <laughs> um, so, a, you can forgive a lot with a good story. Um, good visuals, good stunts, good special effects might make people be like, Oh, that was pretty cool. But they're not going to be as affected by your story without the story. You can have a good story and bad cinematography, but you can't have great cinematography and bad story. Well, what was it, Jupiter Ascending or whatever that, that movie was? I did not see it, but I saw previews, and it looked visually stunning. But from what I understand, the, the very storyline was so convoluted and idiotic that... I felt that way about Valerian City. Well, it was, it was, again, it was like the exact same type of movie. It was like going in there going like, as long as you just wanted to be visually pretty. Mm -hmm. I stopped watching Valerian City. It was, it was on Amazon Prime. I didn't pay for it, but, uh, I mean, beautiful visuals, but then when the story was starting to be told, it was just like, yeah, I just, it's, I'm not interested. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, people, when they're looking at a fan film, generally know that the person is not necessarily a professional storyteller so they might give a little bit of flack for plot points that don't, don't go anywhere or if they get enraged about it and like write to the person and tell all their friends they need to watch this but watch this point that's actually not a bad thing <laughs> it's getting you views it's getting you exposure but it's um, still you have a storyline yeah it, it's definitely a learning process you have to if you're making a fan film, you're likely not in the industry, you're not an expert, um, but it, it should inspire you to want to learn more, to improve. Especially when you get negative comments, if you put it up on YouTube and you get a negative comment, and it's like, man, I don't want, I don't like negative comments, I need to fix this somehow. So, um, story is great. As far as the tools that are available, it used to be very difficult to get a very good camera. It used to be very difficult. Now you can use DSLRs. You can use, you know, 
4K camcorders. You can use a lot of stuff. Um, as far as sound, I swear by the H4N Zoom. Um, it's a great versatile thing. And I was telling you stuff you uh, hadn't realized that it could also do for yeah. like live streaming. Um, what's that? He's trying to get me to buy one now. They don't really laugh on the XLR cable. It's like, that's useful. Yeah. Really useful. I, I switched. I was using a Rode NTG-1 boom mic as my, like, when I'm presenting. And it worked pretty well. But now I have a lav mic that's wired, works on phantom power, goes right to the H4N. And I think it's increased the um, sound quality. Because even though you could hear me clearly, there was a little bit of an echo from the room because it's not like padded or anything like that. So I think that just upped my audio quality a bit. And people might not even notice necessarily what it is, but they're like, oh, this is good audio. So that's what I've switched to. Um, plus, you can hook it into your laptop with a USB, and you can use it for live streaming. You can hook it up to an XLR cable going to just about anything. Wireless labs, boom mics, um, and it, plus it has built-in uh, microphones that are pretty decent for recording. I've used it at roundtable interviews in that mode or even recording panels and stuff like that. So um, that's what I swear by. Tascam's another good one. Um, there's actually at the Tardis Photo Booth, he's got one that uh, he uses for his podcasting um, and recording, so you can check that out. What is this recorder? This is a Zoom, um, this is my podcasting host's uh, H2. So, yep, we've uh, we've brought this to many a convention for, we, we, we've been fortunate enough by coming to these cons, we get, as long as the guests are amenable, we can, we've used these to interview a lot of celebrity guests with this. Yeah. Is that a good quality microphone? For, for, for this kind of thing it is. Uh, like if you're, if we're at a table and the guests are close by, if it, maybe in this room it'll probably record, maybe might hear some background noises. The better the sound or even video, that you get to that you start with, the better your end quality is going to be. But you can do some processing to even eliminate slight little background hum stuff like that. You don't want to overprocess the sound because then it sounds like if you do too much processing, it sounds like the person's underwater. Yeah. Um, but you and I've actually improved my post sound editing techniques as well. Um, and there's also things like hard limiting, um, which has been used in a lot of TV shows. Uh, if you're not familiar with hard limiting, it's a, a method of using audio and saying, okay, I don't want any of my peaks to be above, I usually use negative six decibels. Um, however, everything that's really low, I want to boost up. So it's not going to go beyond that negative six, but I want to boost it up. So when you're watching a TV show and you see a big explosion and you hear the explosion, but it doesn't blow your ears out, they're limiting that sound. But then, like, a scene later, they're, like, whispering in the dark. And you can still hear everything they're saying, even though it's a whisper and it's really low. They're basically boosting up that sound and leveling it so that an explosion you can hear is 
A whisper you can hear as clearly as the explosion, or else. <laughs> there's, I don't have it with me, but for celebrity interviews, I've done one where there's an adapter you can plug into your phone and then have whatever microphone. I've done a lot of interviews that way, and we've had good sound quality yeah. from that. When you want to learn how to play with a microphone, plug it into your phone and record it. You don't have to buy the $200 just to learn it. Smartphones are getting better and better at not only um, video, which I have like 4K cameras that I do con reports, but sometimes that's like in my hotel room, and I see something like, I want video, yeah. get it on here. The best camera is the camera you have with you. Yep. But, but the quality on some of these smartphones, you know, full HD, some of them can do 4K. And, you know, they actually have some pretty good automatic settings um, that really just, because they're made for people who don't know how to do video to actually get decent video. And you can't go and sometimes adjust the exposure and stuff like that, but, yeah. Can I ask one question? Just going back to the audio topic, one thing that I've been having some difficulties with is trying to find audio, like, soundtracks and music that I can use without violating, like, Copyright. copyrights, right? Do you guys have, uh, do you know of any sites that are more, like, royalty-free that are good things for things like maybe drama or comedy or, like, music that would... I use a couple different sites. Um, well, first of all, if you become a YouTuber, thank you. Uh, if you become a YouTuber, YouTube has an audio library that's available for free for use for any video creators. Um, but there's also things like um, there's a site, Storyblocks, Audioblocks, Videoblocks. You can get like stock footage, you get stuff like that, but they also have like an audio library. On occasion, you will get a copyright claim, and you just have to basically, they give you the information to dispute the claim, and then it reverts to you because you have a license for it. I've never had a problem with Epidemic Sound is another site. Um, and these are sites that you pay a subscription for, but then you have unlimited access to all their music. I found a great... Um, I'm working on some documentary series for the Transformers, and... I found a great um, musical piece that sounds almost exactly like one of the compositions in the original Transformers movie. And I was like, this is perfect. Took it and I put it when I was talking about the movie and actually showing scenes from the movie in the background. So it is, uh, there's a lot of great things out there. Yeah, because uh, one of the benefits that we've had is the understanding that, okay, we can do B-roll footage, insert shots, like a couple of panning for contextual, but normally those are accompanied by some sort of audio cue to allow for the fact that there is no dialogue going on right there. It's just establishing something. Yeah, you'll have music. I had a, uh, a film that was a parody called Professor O What, who's um, basically, he wants to be like the doctor, but he's like, I'm the professor. Professor of what? That, that was a whole thing with him. And there was a montage of people trying to find this little girl's dog, because he's a much lower level hero. And people rushing up with stuffed animals and dogs that were not even close. And, um, and I just, I'd actually wanted to use dialogue in there. And when we finished the 18 hour shoot to put together this 20 minute video, I was like, I couldn't do it. Um, there wasn't enough, so I ended up 
just using music and making it a montage of them coming up and switching scenes. And a lot of those sites have, again, great music that you can do for background of montage scenes or awesome. just to have some dramatic stuff. Um, so, yes, those are the sources I use. Any that you've come across? My co-host, he probably he, we use some music, but it's off some of these free sites also. I don't know the name of one of them, but I won't be surprised if one of the ones that you use, you use also. Yeah, there there are a lot of great resources, and I think video blocks, story blocks is like ninety nine dollars a year. You have access to the audio library. There are some pieces that on the audio library and the video library that you can't access unless you pay extra. You have to be like a higher tier, but uh, a lot of great things. And I've used it for my own films. Like if you want a city, you know, like a panning shop over a city, you could go get a drone and make your own. But if you already have that, then it's a uh, it's greatly available. And we didn't cover every aspect of making a fan film, but I hope this was valuable in getting you idea of what can definitely help your fan film. And especially the audio, which is, again, key. And if anyone has questions on YouTube, um, I had done a panel on that. I can also talk about all kinds of stuff outside of this panel on YouTube um, if you're interested in learning about promoting and all the YouTube-ish things that need to be done. I also have cards for my site if anyone wants to uh, check it out. We've, like I said, we've interviewed a lot of people making fan films, not just Star Trek. If you want to go back in our, our library, if you want to see a good documentary on fan films, Amazon Prime has uh, Backyard Superheroes, I think it's called, or Backyard Heroes. But talk about some of the Star Trek fan films that we, we, we allude to today. Awesome. I've got a Doctor Who treatment that's been sitting on the back burner for like three years now. It percolates every now and again, little bits of ideas, but. I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Yeah, I have a Doctor Who fan film strip that I actually started to shoot, but now I'm going to like modify it and send it to uh, David Morrissey to see if he can actually get it, to oh, wow. get it into the hands of the Doctor Who people because I think it's a really good story and it would bring back his character Jackson Lake. Thanks for coming, folks. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner.